Hello uh, and welcome to 100 Campaigns That Changed the World. I'm Steve Tibbet. Today I am speaking with Paul Afshar, who is the spokesperson for the campaign to end the cladding scandal. Now, the scandal started in the UK. It came to the fore after the Grenfell Tower fire. Uh, in June 2017, a high-rise fire broke out in the 24-storey Grenfell Tower block in, in, in West London. Um, 74 people died, uh, more than 70 were injured, and it was the worst residential fire in the UK since World War II. The fire was started by electrical fault, but it's, I think the point about the fire was that it spread rapidly up the outside of the building, um, and it was accelerated by dangerously combustible composite cladding and external insulation. So basically, the stuff on the outside of the flat made uh, the building into a into a very flammable situation. Nearly five years after Grenfell, millions of people remain um, living in unsafe buildings, and they face life changing bills that they they can't and and also shouldn't have to pay. So the Endor Cladding Scandal campaign was formed, and it's a a bottom up um, resident led campaign, and it is a collaboration between. Lots of organisations inside Housing UK, Cladding Action Group, Manchester Cladiators and Grenfell United and many other groups. Paul is a national spokesperson for for the group. Um, And the campaign's calling on the government to lead an urgent national effort to fix the building safety crisis, which was exposed by the Grenfell tragedy. And Paul himself, as we'll hear in the podcast, was affected not by the Grenfell tragedy directly, but by, uh, or he continues to be affected by having cladding on the outside of his flat. So he's personally affected. Um, I think the other thing about say about the campaign is it's live, so it's kind of halfway through. So I think it's quite interesting to see something that's got some of what it's asking for, but it's not, not all the way there yet. So um, here's the podcast. Welcome to 100 Campaigns That Change the World. I'm Steve Tibbet. I'm here with Paul Afshar from End Our Cladding Scandal. That's right, isn't it, Paul? It is. And um, yes, so thank you for joining me today, Paul. So I just wanted to start with, um, how did you personally get involved with this issue of of cladding uh, and your personal story? Steve, thanks for having me on. Three years ago, about three weeks before Christmas, I discovered that I had a clad flat. And the way I discovered is I had tried to put it on the market. It had not sold. No mortgage company would lend against it. um, And I couldn't remortgage it either. So I was really stuck in limbo with a flat that was worth nothing and potentially flammable as well. Uh, Obviously, that ruined Christmas. And um, I have to say, since then, it's been you know, sleepless nights, anxiety, worry about the cost, about how it's going to be solved, about when it's going to be fixed. I have to say, naturally, I'm a bit of a wallower. So I spent a few days sort of, you know, kicking my bedpost proverbially and sort of, you know, wallowing and and wondering why this has happened to me. And it was so unfair. And I'd worked really hard to save up for this flat. I didn't have any help from my parents. 
But then sort of something kicked in. I think it was an anger inside where I said, okay, cool. There are obviously other people in the same situation. And I wonder how organized everyone is. Mm. Um, as it turns out, there were a, a couple of organizations who, which already existed and sort of have existed for a long time. So one of them being the Leaseholder Knowledge Partnership, for example, um, which were alive to the issue, had started to organize a couple of folk like myself who were in the same situation and, and sort of bandied together other sort of fledgling organizations, which we can talk a bit more about actually, because it's probably interesting to your listenership, under the banner of, of kind of end our cladding scandal. So it was, it, it was sort of around the time that I found out that I myself was an affected leaseholder, I was in a clad flat, that the sort of the, the, the kind of primordial soup of the cladding universe was starting to kind of come together. Yeah, and, and so... Who who are the main players in this in this in this world of, of cladding and and um, you know it, it, including that as well as the campaign groups? I mean, at least three other main groups. There's the the, the government, the cladding companies, um, and obviously then there's there's landlords. But but then so if that's in a, in a way the forces ranged against you, if that's yeah. not too simplistic way of putting it. But then you, you've got the ecosystem, as you said, of the, of the cladding sort of campaign. Yeah. Yeah. So you, you're completely right. And the, the only um, one additional, I guess, group that I would add to that list of, you know, the, the dark side are the manufacturers of cladding materials as well, who, you know, we would argue bear the same sort of culpability and responsibility. But on the, on the side of the, the you know, the, the victims uh, on the side of, you know, affected leaseholders were at the time and now sort of still are a movement of local organizations, um, largely based around areas which had the most affected building. So including Manchester Cladiators, Leeds Cladding Action Group, Ipswich Cladiators. So they started to sort of organize leaseholders within blocks and then sort of um, neighboring blocks have started to organize local groups under the banner of end our cladding scandal. And we'll come on to this in, in, in a bit, I'm sure. But that was really important because whilst this is a national campaign and a national movement of um, people affected, and there are no staff that work for Endark Langscale, it's all volunteers. It is built on the sort of the bedrock of local campaign groups and associated kind of, I guess, affiliate campaign groups as well. So I mentioned one, uh, Leaseholder Knowledge Partnership, run by Martin Boyd, there's um, UK Cladding Action Group run by Ruti Saha, and then obviously sort of, you know, Giles Grover, who created uh, Manchester Cl- uh, Cladiators and now sort of, you know, is effectively the national coordinator of the movement in, in sort of name. So there are, you know, the, I hate to use the phrase sort of standing on the shoulders of giants, but it very much is that where you have these now highly organised, highly effective local campaign groups organised under this now quite sort of vocal and powerful banner of end up lightning scandal. To what extent was that, was any of that ecosystem in place before Grenfell, before the Grenfell Tower disaster? Well, one or two of the organisations, the Leaseholder Knowledge Partnership, the, the ones that have been, I guess, lobbying and campaigning for a change in the entire leasehold system were, were around, and um, the others not yeah. uh, at, at all. And 
it, it it's it's an interesting sort of question in the sense that Grenfell happened nigh on six ish years ago. The tragedy of Grenfell and you know over seventy people lost their lives unnecessarily. And it really only became uh, an issue in the way that it is now. So the issue of cladding um, and building safety, I would argue probably about three, three and a half years ago, which is interesting because, you know, Grenfell is seared into the memories of most British people in for all the wrong reasons. And of course, people internationally as well. And whilst I hope that there has been a degree of justice for survivors and, and sort of families of, of Grenfell, the Grenfell dead, it, it hasn't sort of happened quite at the pace that you might have expected it to, given such a national tragedy occurred. So there was a big gap between Grenfell and then the cladding issue becoming a national issue probably about two, two and a half years ago. Do you, have, do you take advice or have links with other campaign groups, um, you know, the, the similar sorts of campaign groups that campaign on, I don't know, related issues or, or different issues like, you know, COVID, family support group, or that, those sort of campaigns that are grassroots, Hillsborough, these episodes that I've done in the past. Yeah. Do you have any, do you, do you have links with those? Yes. So, um, well, the obvious one to point out is Grenfell United, which is one of the campaign groups associated with the you know, bereaved and family members of, of kind of Grenfell, the Grenfell dead. The others to point out are there's been uh, some project work with, you know, organisations like Led by Donkeys, yeah. at, you know, and others as well. But the, the, the kind of the beauty of the, the NR cladding scandal movement is, is that it is by its nature a collection of sort of much smaller community-based organisations some of them are entirely based around the the kind of the interests and needs of local leaseholders, people who own clad flats. Some of them are a bit broader, based around reform of the leasehold system, like leaseholder uh, knowledge partnership. But the thing to point out, and I think this is what makes End Our Cladding Scandal as a campaign, in some respects, different and possibly unique, is a, a strategic decision taken quite early on in the campaign was to align our interests as, you know, owners of flats, unsellable, flammable flats, with the interests of the Tory party. Right. And that might seem like a nothing to say, but what I mean by that is, in general, it is di- slightly more difficult to lobby a Conservative government made up of MPs largely not from inner cities because you know of course they don't have high-rise flats um in their uh, constituencies they don't have necessarily a huge amount of affected buildings in their constituencies as well but the issue when you sort of unpack it is 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 one about cladding and it's one of building safety as well but it's also really about it gets under the skin of this idea of the dream of home ownership, the British and sometimes a conservative dream of home ownership mm. as well. And when you start to position it in that way, it becomes one uh, an issue of fairness, clearly, but also one that aligns with you know the interests of the Daily Mail and conservative backbench MPs as well. 
And that strategic decision early on and, and the very hard work of, you know, of people involved in the campaign, some of whom I mentioned, some of whom I haven't as well, to get the Daily Mail on the side and actually sort of launch a, co-launch a campaign with the Daily Mail to get the Conservative government of the time to pay attention and pay up was um, really important and really instrumental. Why? Well, you know, it's one thing banging the drum nationally and talking about, you know, this being a, a building safety crisis. It's another thing talking about this also being, um, uh, you know, something that effect- undermines the whole idea of uh, the fairness and equality that mm. comes with home ownership. And not to forget, a lot of folk who are affected were either helped financially by their parents or, or, or not. But in any case, those parents live, generally speaking, in conservative voting areas right. with conservative MPs as well. So, you know, you, you expand the impact that we as effectively leaseholders have by saying, okay, well, this is something that affects us. It undermines the whole idea of um, the dream of home ownership. It's undermining the, the sort of financial security of a lot of small brackets, conservative voting mums and dads in you know constituencies as well, or at least conservative voting constituencies. This is an issue for backbench Tory MPs. Mm. And the Daily Mail is saying all of these same things as well. And so that was absolutely instrumental in building a very core, very solid coalition of backbench Tory MPs, which ranged from Ian Duncan Smith, who was obviously a former Conservative leader, right through to, you know, um, some Conservative MPs who uh, were the MPs of, of, of affected constituencies as well, and actually got the housing minister of uh, the time at the time it was Robert Jenrick, to pay attention. Yeah. And it became much more of an issue. I think without those things, without that sort of much broader coalition, I mean, the Daily Mail isn't necessarily thought of when you think of campaigning organisations, although mm. it kind of is, it might not be the campaigns you agree with, but that broader coalition was what made this an issue which couldn't be ignored by the government. Look, I'm interested to know, and, and to be a bit careful, because it... <laughs> Unlike some of the campaigns I've looked at, this is a live campaign, and you're still, you know, you're still fighting for what you what you're trying to get. But have there been fissures, or at least disagreements, debates about whether that was the right strategy? Did some people feel uncomfortable with going down that that quite sort of what you might call it in sort of campaigning terms an insider strategy? You know, in you know, being inside the system, as you said, focusing on the on the ruling party, the Conservatives through, if you like, the back door of the, of the Daily Mail and, and backbench MPs. Mm. But did, were there people saying, well, hang on a minute, you know, we don't want to work with those people? Or, or was it well, simple? There was certainly my mum who, my mum uh, used to buy the Socialist Worker mm. as a newspaper, so she kind of had a raised eyebrow, to put it politely. Uh, and, you know, and, and friends of mine who I have to say were not um, affected, leaseholders like myself, did question why so much attention was being focused on, you know, building a, a co- building a partnership with the Daily Mail and, and Conservative Backbench MPs. But what's interesting is that those of us who 
we're kind of living and breathing this day in, day out, yes. both as leaseholders, but as, as kind of people who campaign, I think just saw the sense in it mm. for, for obvious reasons. What has changed ever slightly now is we, and this is kind of a, a big question for us as a, as a movement, is we face the prospect of a potential change in government. And, you know, that brings with it a different set of stakeholders, mm. you know, potential ministers. It brings with it a slightly different policy landscape. It brings with it a different dynamic in terms of, you know, do we need to build support amongst backbench Labour MPs using the Daily Mail? Well, that would look a bit different, wouldn't it, in terms of the kind of the jigsaw pieces that fit together. So the short answer to your question is is no, not really, because back then, and, and obviously looking forward now, we, we were in the middle of a Conservative government. We still have a Conservative government three and a bit years later, and they are the people who can or, or cannot or would or wouldn't unlock funding and put a framework in place, as Michael Gove has done, to say, okay, well, it's not just the taxpayer who should have to pay for this. By the way, this is deeply unfair. Um, it's the people who cause the problem, the mess in the first place, the builders, the, the developers. Yeah. And that, that was one question I had for you, because it seems that you alighted on the government as a sort of your main target, if you like, that they're the ones that in the, ultimately control the policy landscape and the, and the funding that you, you, you'll need you know, to get the, the cladding off the, the, the flats and the yeah. place. But there are all those other parties out there that, as you said, the landlords, the companies, mm. the builders, plus the, the companies that produce, you know, the, the, the cladding. Was there a conscious decision not to go for them? Or I mean, I, I can see that you're still sort of targeting them in many ways, but that the solution doesn't necessarily lie with them. They're not the people who are going to fix the problem. How, how do you see that? It's a great question. I think initially the feeling was that we needed to get justice from people who made the cladding. Mm. Uh, and there are lots of companies out there who do and, you know, for want of, uh, legal protection, I shan't mention their, their names, but I think, you know, just Google them. Yes. But what became apparent was that it's, it, there's little leverage to get those guys to, to pay up. And I'll explain what I mean there. We explored and experimented with targeting investors in, well, of um, cladding manufacturers, and there are some very big or very, very big companies, very big global companies that have you know boards and very high profile investors. In order to embarrass them, in order to create sort of investor pressure to bring them to the table, to the negotiating table, effectively, and, and get them to pay up. However, what's interesting if you compare that um, approach with sort of what the government is now doing. Um, in terms of using its leverage, you can see why we've ended up where we are. And what I mean by that is you've got a government who are now, at least for the time being, going after the, the, the developers. So people who build stuff um, is, is probably the best way to put it. So everyone from Persimmon to um, Lend-Lease, uh, et cetera. Now, the interesting thing there is a lot of those very big developers 
rely on government contracts to build stuff. It could be schools, hospitals, could be flats, you know, houses, etc. The government said, well, okay, well, if you don't pay up, we're not going to allow you to go for those contracts that work. And that is a huge financial dent in their, their business model. So coming back to the question of leverage, you know, how much leverage do we have over the cladding manufacturers? Well, we can embarrass them, we can create investor pressure, but that is nothing in comparison to the leverage that the government has by saying, if you don't pay to fix the mess that you caused, we will stop you from building in this country. Like that is this huge, huge leverage. And this is something that we've been calling on for the last couple of years. You know, if you, if you cause a problem, you've got to pay up to fix it. And if you don't pay up to fix it, you should be banned from building. It was a simple equation. And now that equation has actually sort of come into force. So back to your kind of original question, Steve, like, you know, why, if to put it slightly different, why haven't we targeted others in the same way? Well, we are, you know, they're still in the crosshairs. It's the cladding manufacturers. It's, you know, it's, it's the developers, the building construction companies uh, as well, and obviously the government, is because I think it, it's working out how to apply the kind of greatest pressure with the greatest impact. And the developers and builders were the area, were the group where we could do that to the greatest impact. And I've got to say, you sort of look back sort of three and a half-ish years ago to when there was zero pounds on the table to solve mm-hmm. cladding. And there's now £10 billion on the table to solve cladding, a mixture of sort of public funding and getting the developers to pay up. That has only been possible because of the great work of so many thousands of campaigners across up and down the um, country, obviously, but also because of the strategy of going after the developers and getting the government to do the same. Great. We're going to uh, have a short break there, but we'll be back in a moment with Paul Ashar talking about cladding. See you in a bit. now talking again about cladding and Paul I wanted to ask go back to the the coalition or the the, the coalition of groups working on this issue and ask because you said before it's interesting to me that there are no paid employees of of that of that group how do you work out the division of labor between you how do you you know if it's whose job is it to do I don't know comms or uh, or, 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 or to to respond to an inquiry, or you know, how do the jobs get parcelled out? And is is that a difficult thing? It happened. The truth is, it it has happened pretty organically. And just to add a bit of colour to that, the kind of breadth of affected people it is obviously very broad. It includes journalists, it includes people who work for government, people who work in the you know, the housing ministry, for sure. It includes people who work in policy. And 
naturally those sorts of people will stick their hands up to say, well, I'm a journalist, I know how the media works, or I lead policy for an advocacy organisation, I know how policymaking works, or I'm a civil servant, I know how you know, government works, etc. And that's sort of how it happens. So when I think of some of the, the kind of the people who we've got doing that including myself you've got um kareen who has a background in policy you've got emma who is a sort of journalist a national journalist you've got giles who i think is just a sort of an, a natural campaigner um in and of himself uh, these these are people who have effectively said well i think i know how to do this and i'm done i'm really effing angry about it i want to put myself forward so it did happen organically. There wasn't a sort of a conversation that said, okay, you do this, you do this, you do this. I mean, uh, the interesting thing is there's new people, new folk come along. Now there are sort of designated work streams effectively. So there's obviously, you know, people who are involved in policy and who spend a lot of time dealing with, you know, consultation documents for various levels of government or various government departments who spend time meeting with, you know, Michael Gove and ministers themselves. There's people um, like myself who do much more of the, the kind of media side of things, both locally and nationally. There's people who um, have in, experience in dealing with investors who, you know, there was an entire kind of investor work stream, going back to what we were saying before about investors in cladding companies. Mm-hmm. So going back to the original question, way back when it was very much, uh, I've got this experience and I, I think I'd like to sort of lead on this particular part of work. Now it's a much more established structure when new folk come in and say, well, look, I've, I've just found out or, you know, I've known for a while, but I, I just really want to do something about it now. It's relatively easy to say, okay, cool. We've got these work streams effectively with these group, you know, subgroups that meet you can slot into media or policy or whatever it may be. So, and but what about this kind of the boring stuff? I don't know. I mean, there must be sort of more mundane jobs than, than that that need doing or, you know, fixing the website or yeah. I don't know, who does who does all of that? Yeah, well, I, it, it again, it sort of falls within to the, the kind of work streams. So, mm. you know, if you're, for example, if you're kind of in the media work stream and you need to be writing a press release, then great, you know, that that's where it comes in. Or the website, you know, I think that things like really practical things, because I think this is obviously, you know, interesting tactically, really practical things like the website or organizing a demonstration or whatever it may be, that just require time and a bit of technical resource. I think sort of generally tend to fall to people who set it up in the first place. So there is a person um, who has set up one of the various many websites and there is a person who um, has dealt with, you know, the government department the most. And, you know, generally they tend to lead on those sorts of things. Just looking at the sort of choreography of the last six years from Grenfell, but particularly since, since the campaign started, are there key moments that you would point to where you where you would see, well, uh, okay, we've made a, a leap forwards here, or this was catalytic in that happening. I mean, you talked about the, the work with um, the Daily Mail, um, but but what for you were the, you know, what, was, what for you were the sort of the, the big moments or mm. the important moments? I think there were two other ones as well. One was 
actually getting the Labour Party to create um, what effectively became a National Day of Action through the mechanism of proposing an urgent question to the minister on, I, th- I think, from memory, uh, don't quote me this, I, I sort of feel like it was a Wednesday, and the reason that it's important that it was a Wednesday is because that's the day of Parliament, um, Prime Minister's question times, and the, the Parliament is usually quite full. So the, the kind of choreography of that worked really well because it got Keir Starmer, um, who was obviously then Labour leader, on pretty much every news channel with um, a woman um, from Leeds, actually, Hayley Tillotson, who was the first person to go bankrupt because of cladding charges. And, and that created a moment in time where everyone sat up and recognised, oh, my God, this is an issue that must affect, you know, people who live in, you know, high-rise blocks that I never meet. It, it's far broader than this. So I think that was, that was one of them. And it was, it was really interesting working with the very top of a political party and kind yeah. of seeing how a lot of that works. Mm. Um, and, and it's amazing how much sort of media firepower and attention can be corralled by the leader of a political party. Um, so that was sort of instrumental. I think the other, in a slightly different way, was getting all the, all the local groups to the first parliamentary pro, um, protest. So this, you know, we bust in people from Ipswich, Manchester, Sheffield, Leeds, um, all different parts of London to Parliament to have an actual, you know, old style placard demo protest shouting. And, you know, all manner of political grandees came out and addressed the crowd. Every single media, you know, journalist and platform under the sun came and sort of covered it as well. Again, that was, I think, instrumental in demonstrating the strength of feeling and also the fact that this was an issue, again, which affected, you know, hundreds of thousands of people down the country. Mm. So I'd say the sort of the the three things that stick out in memory are the Daily Mail launching their kind of cladding campaign, the sort of Keir Starmer Day of Action and the parliamentary protest. They they would be moments. And this next question is something, something that some campaigners find it hard to answer. Um, because of the sort of campaigning mindset of looking forward, but if you did look back, mm. what would you, what were the mistakes? Did you that you not you personally, but the, the campaign made any missteps or mistakes or things on reflection? You thought, well, that was a bit of a waste of time, or that was actually counterproductive. Yeah, I wouldn't say counterproductive per se, but let me answer the question this way: there, there are two that stick out. One is small and one is large. The, the small one is, um, as well as this being a issue of cladding and uh, of you know home ownership and fairness, it's also a, a mental health issue. What I mean by that is, you know, if you wake up every day in a flat that you think is dangerous and that you can't move out of, and you're going to have to pay tens of thousands of pounds to to fix, that takes a huge toll on on your mental yeah. health, and so. The kind of the, the attrition of really key people involved because, you know, it's just so overwhelming and life needs to go on was something that I think wasn't obvious at the start. And perhaps we should have priced in, but I guess how would you necessarily know? So there's one um, GP um, from Sheffield who actually was one of the kind of the, the instigators of this whole movement who... Um, I think for work, moved to Australia, but effectively was just sort of like, I can't, you know, I cannot deal with this anymore. This is day in, day out, 
going to sort of live, live it. And that wasn't quite a mistake, but it was something that I think in recognizing at the beginning of the kind of the campaign could have helped because what it meant was that you lose very good people, you lose very good spokespeople, you lose people who are the driving force of these campaigns, and you, you therefore lose momentum. And I'll come back to momentum in a second as well. The other is if you ask most people in the street now, or even sort of, you know, most of my kind of friendship group, broader friendship group, they will say, oh, yeah, Cladium, hasn't it been sorted, though? Mm. There is this perception that because there is a notional 10 billion bid on the table, it's like, well, yes, it's, it's done. And the reality is it is far from done. And obviously, I would say that, but it is the reality. The vast majority of flats have not been remediated or made safe. The um, funding that is needed to do that isn't sufficient. The promise of funding hasn't actually translated into actual work and funded work to make flat safe as well. So it's very much um, an issue for people like myself and for those who won't get any funding. Yeah. If you're living in a flat below 11 metres, you don't get any funding currently from right. the government. And the reason that's important is, or the kind of reason I'm mentioning it, is I think had we tried to make this more of an election issue, so we really had the, the national and any local media attention for a good sort of three to six months in 2021. Had we sort of made this more of an election issue than at the kind of local elections and potentially at a national election when it comes around, and obviously we've got local elections coming now, I think that the risk of losing the momentum that we talked about and the risk of the misconception that this is a solved issue wouldn't quite be there. Now, I know you're going to ask me, okay, well, how do you make it a local election issue? I think the obvious thing to do is sort of, you know, as was done back, you know, originally back then is, is sort of work with local political candidates, get them to sign up to a charter, that sort of stuff. I think that sort of stuff really, really works and worked for us briefly in the past. But I think we, we should have probably carried that work on because, of course, now we have big local elections. It's still an issue. And, you know, people like myself will probably be voting on the basis of whether their local candidate is doing something about cladding as well. So I think that that sort of could, could help solve that kind of challenge of, you know, momentum and people think it was, people thinking it was gone away. We started with um, talking about you personally, just to want to end with that. Do you ever get to the point where you think, or oh, put enough in, you know, obviously you're personally affected, so you've got a personal sort of reason to be involved, but do you, do you think, oh, this is not, you know, I'm not being paid for this, it takes up so much of my time, and it's just, it's, it's slow and painful work. Do you, did you ever feel like that at all? Yeah, yeah, because it, it comes back to this, whole idea of I really worked my ass off to give myself and my partner a home and I'm stuck with this you know horrible nightmare of a flat which is flammable and unsellable and 
I'm having to fight with with others, thank God, but still having to fight tooth and nail just to make it right, just to get back to where I thought I was three and a half years ago. So there is that sort of kind of sense of injustice and, and kind of just, you know, feeling like too much at times. But it's the same sort of emotion, the same sort of sense of anger that drives me and I think a lot of other folk in doing it as well. I spoke at a, well, we organised a, um, a a big sort of public meeting with, you know, local MP Hillary Ben in, in Leeds and the council leader, etc. because it's where I'm from. Uh, and I sort of said to the, the group, my, my key message was, I won't stop until every home is made safe. And I hope that's a promise that only takes a couple of years. My worry is that it will take longer. But this is something which, unless we keep unrelenting pressure up on the government of the day, will not go away. And my sort of nightmare scenario, or my kind of real anxiety when I first started out getting involved with this issue was that cladding could become our generation's asbestos. What I mean by that is if you buy an old house or an old flat and you discover it's got asbestos, you say, oh gosh, that's a real shame. I should have to pay to get it fixed. Mm. No one is talking about, you know, no, there are no kind of, well, maybe there are, I don't know, but asbestos is not a national political or policy issue in, this, in the, the way that it probably was whenever it was um, you know, first discovered. And people have to sort of price it in themselves when they buy a place mm. because we become, I think, a bit complacent about it. And that is the worst case scenario for cladding where people become complacent and say, okay, well, if I want to buy a, um, a flat and it's my first property, I am going to probably have to buy with cladding. Oh, well, I'll just have to price that in and sort it out. No, that's, mm. that, that is the, the enemy of what we're trying to achieve here. Because what we're trying to achieve, probably for the f- first time in Britain, is to actually make sure that the people who cause the mess fix it and the people who cause the mess pay off. So, as I said, I won't stop until every home is made safe. And I hope that is a promise that we can deliver in years rather than decades. But I'll work down, down hard to make sure it's the case. Well, I, I wish you every success, but it's been fascinating getting under the hood of the uh, the cladding scandal campaign and appreciate your time. So thanks very much. Paul. 